0: Everyone is Talking About This, the true story of a rape case, is written by mother and teacher Lisa Lennox. On one ordinary July evening in 2021, the lives of Lisa and her family were turned upside down when her 17-year-old daughter Beatrice, or Bea as she prefers to be known, became the victim of one of the worst crimes that can befall anyone. What follows is the story of the aftermath of this horrific event as Lisa, her husband Phil, youngest daughter Iris, and of course, and most importantly, Be Herself, are forced to navigate the police and the legal system in their fight for justice. Please be aware that this audiobook contains references to rape, sexual assault, mental health conditions, and eating disorders. There is also occasional strong language. The police officers, Jake and Will, recommend that we take Bea to hospital to have her checked over. She will have to go to a haven hospital as well, they tell us. I've not heard of these places, and Jake explains that the havens offer urgent and follow-up care to people who have been sexually assaulted or raped. Bea will need a full forensic examination as soon as possible, hopefully tomorrow. But meanwhile, we will go to our local paediatric A&E department at the hospital close to our home. When we get there, we find it depressingly familiar and depressingly unchanged. Over the last few years, Phil and I have spent many hours here. During the worst of her eating disorder, when she was regularly self-harming, we often had to bring B. We had a traffic light system to tell us when to come. Green equaled feeling okay. Amber equaled not feeling okay but not in danger, and red equaled not feeling okay and might do something about it. Red meant taking her to hospital, whatever time of day or night it occurred. I was always unsure how effective this was. Being there reduced the opportunity for Beatrice to self-harm, of course, but the idea that anyone, be they consultant, doctor or nurse, really had the time, let alone the expertise, to deal with a suicidal teen seemed unlikely, to say the least. My suspicions were borne out one terrible evening when Phil took her in. The duty psychiatrist, on hearing that B's weight on admission to the eating disorders clinic had been 36 kilos, cheerfully announced that this wasn't that low, that she had seen far lower, and why had B even been admitted? The sheer insensitivity and stupidity of this remark, let alone its clinical inaccuracy, incensed me. How could anyone with any understanding of anorexia say such a thing when everyone knows that a young person with an eating disorder has one goal in life, to be thinner than anyone else alive? Literally. Beatrice's first couple of years struggling with her eating disorder were characterised by one thing, the idea that she'd never managed to get thin enough. She had to go back to starvation to reach that low rate that for an anorexic is always just a few ounces or grams less than they currently are just a little more to lose and then she'd stop, a little thinner and that would be enough. Except it never is enough. The long road to recovery involves overcoming that insane obsession, though I'm not sure it ever goes completely for some people. Research has shown that there are three outcomes for those who suffer severe eating disorders. No recovery, that ultimately leads to either a lifetime in clinical care or death. Complete recovery, where the person leaves their eating disorder behind them and never thinks of it again. Or the third, most common outcome, which is to learn to live with the food, weight and eating phobias. They don't disappear, but they become, for the most part, manageable. B is definitely in the third camp. I look around me. Now we are back in the place I said I wouldn't return to, and I can't work out whether it's worse to be here now or better. As I text Phil, who's parking the car, to let him know where we are, I recall that on that infamous occasion when the psychiatrist had essentially taken B's recovery back to square one again, the car had almost been towed away. Phil and B had got to it just as it was about to be lifted onto the low loader. Phil rushed up to the operative, waving and shouting and imploring him to stop. Amazingly, he did. Apparently, if any part of the car is still on the ground, the removal can cease. One tyre was still just about touching the tarmac, hence the whole operation could be aborted. A nurse appears, rattling the door handle as she enters and noisily pushing a blood pressure monitor ahead of her. She doesn't introduce herself, in fact she completely ignores us as she slaps cables around and thumps the trolley's wheels, huffing and sighing all the while. To say she seems grumpy would be an understatement. Pissed off would be more accurate. But I can't believe it's because of us, or aimed at us. She must have been told by the police officers waiting outside the room what we are here for. It's probably been a tough night shift and she's feeling tired. The milk of human kindness will soon start flowing, I'm sure. How could one young woman not empathise with another young woman in this hideous situation? The nurse steps towards us where we're sitting on the bed and impatiently grabs B's arm. So what has happened to you? she asks. Not kindly with a hint of a foreign accent. On her fleece, I see the name of a paediatric hospital that looks Spanish. I purse my lips. Then, she's been raped, I say, as mildly as I can. The nurse can't have been told, so I will tell her, because she needs to stop treating B like an inconvenience. But she can't remember much about it, I add, just in case this insensitive nurse is about to ask for details. Why not, the nurse demands. Did she have a knock to her head? She makes an overly elaborate peering motion to emphasise the lack of perceptible injury. I can't see any damage. She hasn't made eye contact with either of us. As I sit, stunned by her rudeness and lack of empathy, she turns to the machine and stares at the monitor. Absolutely fine. Her words and tone of voice exactly express her obvious belief that we are time wasters, malingerers. She rips off the sleeve and slams a thermometer stick into P's mouth. Anger is rising steadily within me now, sending red-hot blood through my veins. B is acquiescent and uncomplaining. She's still numb with shock, bewildered, traumatised. She's not in a fit state to stand up for herself, so I must do it for her. But I'm the kind of person who reads reports about the abuse of frontline health workers, the criticism and attacks that they face daily purely by going to work and doing their job, and I don't want to add to the pain or be one of those awful people. And I'm a teacher, so I know what it's like to be the public service employee taking the brunt of the public's anger. So I say nothing. Just watch as the nurse pulls the thermometer out, glances at it briefly, and discards it into the medical waste bin. Without another word, she stomps out of the room, "'dragging the squeaky monitor trolley behind her. "'I want to say something to Be, "'explain to her why someone who should be caring can be so mean, "'but I don't know how to do this. "'I wonder if the nurse is actually being horrid, "'or am I just supersensitive? my judgement clouded, "'my maternal senses on high alert, "'and therefore not to be trusted to make accurate assessments "'on how someone is treating my precious daughter. "'I say nothing, just reach out my hand to hold Bee's. Eventually, the door opens again. A doctor. She asks to speak to be alone. Is this because they don't believe her? Or think one of us may have harmed her? I don't dare to ask. Meekly, I go and stand outside the room. In the cubicle on the other side of the corridor, the grumpy nurse thrusts a thermometer stick into a toddler's mouth. I puzzle over whether she's showing this little boy more or less sympathy than Beatrice. I think marginally more. But the child is sitting in his mother's lap, right under her nose, so perhaps that explains the nurse's slightly more amenable behaviour. The doctor calls me to come back in. She explains that she's given Beatrice the morning-after pill and the first five days of a course of HIV-preventative medication. This must be taken for 28 days, but we'll get the remaining dose when we attend the specialist Haven Hospital. She's also giving B-jabs for hepatitis. There are three types she's at risk from, but only two have a prophylactic. The other will just have to have tests for in the forthcoming months, plus she'll need STD checks in two months, as well as further jabs, but she can have those in the community, that should not be a problem, do I have any questions, anything that's not clear? I stare at her in mute horror. It hadn't occurred to me. I hadn't even thought about this. About AIDS, or pregnancy, or hepatitis, or STDs, or anything. Dumbly, I shake my head. it It's fine, I stutter. I, I understand. But I don't. I don't understand anything. What has this monster subjected my little girl to? What did he think gave him the right? I want to scream, to rage at the cruel sky, to beat my fists against the walls in uncontrollable anger, at the unfairness of it all. Instead, I sit quietly back down on the bed beside Beatrice. Phil comes in. It must have taken ages to find a parking space, even in the middle of the night. Poor residents of the streets surrounding this hospital. They must hate it. The door opens again. A police officer walks in. She is slight and blonde and has a lovely smile. She must be the duty-so-it, sexual offences investigative-trained officer that Will had told us would attend as soon as she could get here. Hi there, she says. I'm Hannah. Her voice is gentle and calm, and she sounds so kind that just for a moment I feel like letting go, handing it all over to her, letting someone else take charge of this appalling situation. After a short chat with us, asking our names and how we are, she takes B to another room to talk to her alone. Does she not believe B? Does she think we did something to our daughter? Just as with the doctor, and despite Hannah's kindness, I am suspicious of everything and everyone. Phil goes to find the toilet or to call his sister or something. I don't take in what he tells me. I wait, alone, for what seems like interminable hours. I wonder how grumpy-faced nurse is getting on, how many more patients she's terrorising with her foul mood. Finally, Hannah brings B back to me. When they enter, she says something about phone calls. It triggers a recollection of one of the PCs also mentioning phone calls in the Duke's head. What are these phone calls? Hannah explains. There are a couple of numbers on Beatrice's phone that she doesn't recognise, that she's never had any prior contact with. Oh. I don't know what to say. Who's calling B that she doesn't know? Why? Has she been stalked? But if someone had randomly got her number, how would they know her location or anything about her? Phil enters in time to hear the last of this. He looks distraught beyond belief. He's just started a new job, editing a big American documentary, and he'll need to go to work tomorrow. Today for it is well past midnight now. Go home, I tell him. It suddenly occurs to me that Iris is home alone, that she might wake up, and God knows what she would do if she found us all gone. Take the car, B and I can walk, I say. Some fresh air will be good after being in here for so long. It's already been two hours, and we've no idea when we'll be able to leave. I don't want to have to worry about getting a ticket if we're still here at eight when the restrictions start. Okay. He is done in, exhausted. We both are. At least I don't have to worry about work for the next few weeks. Hannah says she needs to make some phone calls and leaves the room. Phil is still standing there, dithering, unable to make the decision of whether to go or whether to stay. B gets out her phone. It's him, Mummy, she whispers. She holds out the screen to me, with a WhatsApp profile showing on it. The picture is a selfie of a young man with darkish skin, thick eyebrows, dark hair. He looks Indian, or South American, perhaps. In the background are the metal legs of at least two beds. A hostel, I immediately think. He's homeless. And then, what the fuck? The man who attacked her has her phone number, and he's phoning her. I grab the phone and try to zoom into the picture, but Beatrice corrects me. It's a screen grab. Hannah took it. He keeps phoning. He's phoned again and again. I stare, open mouthed, then look up at Phil. Fury emanates from him like steam from a boiling cauldron. He's clenching and unclenching his hands, balling them into fists, white-knuckled, furious. "Bastard!" he hisses, and then "bastard" at the top of his voice. Phil, I remonstrate, trying to soothe him, will be chucked out if we start shouting obscenities, and then will be the problem, and not this despicable piece of lowlife on Beatrice's phone screen. Send it to me, Phil commands, and then snatches the phone out of my hand and sends the image himself. Hannah says she has to take my phone. Beatrice says it matter-of-factly, without emotion. That's how numb she is. In normal circumstances, any teen being told their phone is being confiscated would elicit an outpouring of emotion akin to that of a mother having her child taken away. It's okay, baby, I say. We'll get you a new one. Any phone you like. iPhone 21. Whatever. B manages to crack a feeble smile. It only goes up to 12, Mum. 12, then. The best 12 there is. But it's expensive, and you don't have the money, and I only just got this one. Suddenly, she's crying again, but this time the manageable tears a teenager can shed with ease about that most treasured possession, a smartphone, not the visceral, soul destroying tears caused by being subjected to something so colossal, so unfathomable, as having been raped five minutes from her own front door. It doesn't matter, I reassure her. It's only money. We'll sort it out. I want a new number. Yes, of course. We'll start again, from scratch. Won't we, Phil? Phil is red in the face and breathing scarily heavily. He nods but doesn't reply. I don't think he can speak right now. He's so incandescent with rage. Phil, you need to go, I say firmly, to check on Iris. We'll be fine. Take the car, as I said. After a long pause, he agrees. He leaves. Beatrice leans her head against my shoulder. The heavy, solid weight of it grounds me. It has never felt so welcome. She's here. She's alive. She might not be. I can't cope with the enormity of this reality. Hannah returns. Beatrice says someone's been calling her. We think it's him. Why am I telling the police officer that? She already knows it, surely. I'm staging the obvious because the obvious is all I can grab hold of. Everything else is slipping through my fingers like quicksilver. Yes. How does he have her number? Hannah hesitates. We don't know. That's something the investigation team can establish if... She stumbles and resumes. When we find him. Right. Another thing I hadn't even thought of yet. That they might not catch this guy. That he might disappear into whatever rat hole he inhabits in this huge city and never be found. Do you know how much longer we'll have to be here? Suddenly I just want to go home, to take B home, to where we'll be safe and he can't get us. I'll go and ask thank you. It's not long before Hannah returns. The doctor says she's getting the prescriptions done and I think they want a urine sample. I'll wait out here. The door handle rattles unnecessarily long and loud and the sullen nurse is standing there in the threshold. She doesn't come in. Instead, she addresses us from the doorway. You need to do sample, here. She literally throws a cardboard tray wrapped in plastic onto the bed where Beatrice and I are sitting, then turns round, slamming the door shut behind her. Bee and I look at each other. What the? Do I have to wean in this? B holds up the tray. I mean, fill it up. How do I carry it once it's full? Something in me snaps. Fuck the poor NHS workers and clapping on the doorsteps and hailing our heroes. She's a nurse in a paediatric A&E department. If she hates all humankind as much as her actions indicate, why doesn't she get a job working with machines that won't care how rude she is? I grab the tray and storm out of the room. The nurse is standing, staring sulkily at the computer monitor. Another nurse in a different coloured uniform, purple, not green, is standing next to her. Okay, I say, taking care not to raise my voice. I'm really sorry. I've been as patient as I can be with your bad mood and your poor attitude. But enough is enough. There's a seriously traumatised child in there, and I've had enough of you treating her like dog shit on your shoe. Please give me a sample pot. My daughter will do the sample, and then we would like to go. And please don't come to see us again. Perhaps your colleague can take over from now on. I look defiantly between the two women, daring them to argue. I don't care what they think of me. My job is to protect B, and I will do it to the ends of the earth. The purple-clad nurse immediately sums up the situation. No problem, she says hurriedly. She reaches into a basket for a urine sample pod. Here you go. Just bring it back to me. And the doctor's doing the prescription now, so you'll be able to go soon. It's 5am before Beatrice and I are finally back out on the streets. Hannah and the two male PCs have long gone. As we were exiting via the main A&E department, the nice nurse had come bustling after us. Remember she's not to wash, bathe or shower, she had instructed. Not until after she's been to the haven. Outside, the air is fresh and cool, the dawn breaking. As we trudge towards home, jaunty foxes cross our path. Most of these seasoned urban ones have no fear of people, and aren't even nocturnal anymore, but they like this time of the day, when few people are about and the remains of takeaways are scattered across the slabs. We walk mainly in silence. I'm holding B's arm, but her legs seem firmer than earlier, though I don't know how, given how exhausted she must be. At home I tuck her into bed. If you feel bad, I say, if you feel like self-harming or anything like that, just come to me. Wake me up. Any time. Okay. Do you promise? I promise. I leave her, blackout blind drawn down, shutting out the world outside that now seems to contain nothing but evil. In my own bedroom, I heave myself into bed, not because I think I'll sleep, but just for the relief of being horizontal for a while, in the dark and quiet. As I close my eyes, I know one thing only. Nothing will ever be the same again, for Beatrice or any of our family. When I was growing up, we believed that rape was the woman's fault. We believed that because the patriarchy, ably represented by judges such as James Pickles, who famously declared that a rape victim was asking for it because she was wearing a short skirt, repeatedly, doggedly and energetically told us so. It's probably taken me, along with a whole bunch of women who grew up in the 1980s and 90s, all my life up to now to eradicate this tosh from my brain and to know that rape is never the woman's fault. Yet here it is again. I can't stop myself from fearing that B must have done something to encourage or facilitate this attack. That being out at 9.30pm means that, really, rape was only to be expected. Or at least, if not expected, possible. And actually, if you don't want to be thought to be giving out the wrong signals, just don't go out. Don't be on the streets on your own, ever, if you are female. Definitely not if you are a young female. Nonsense. I am disgusted with the way my own mind is working. Lack of sleep is making me delusional. But even though when I am in my right mind I know, with absolute certainty, that she did nothing, that none of this is on her, yet still the thought that someone will blame B haunts me throughout my every waking moment. To take the blame of her I blame myself. Why didn't I go and meet B at the tube station? Why had I ever let her out on her own? I know the only place the blame lies is on the perpetrator, but I can't stop. Then I start to fantasise about how different it would have been if I had gone to find her. If I'd come upon her and her assailant, how I would have leapt upon him, dragged him off her, held him somehow until the police arrived. I go to military fitness classes and I'm pretty strong and pretty fit, and above all, my rage would have empowered me. I feel sure I could have got the better of him. The phone ringing breaks me out of daydreaming the scenario where I'm pinning the perpetrator down with brute strength and my body weight whilst helpful passers-by dial 999. I answer the call. A male voice sounds across the airwaves. He says his name is David, and he is Beatrice's sowet officer. He asks if I'm free to talk. Agreeing that I am, I try my best to answer his questions. At the same time, I'm thinking, I thought Hannah was our soet. Does Beatrice not get to opt for a woman officer? but I'm British and female and polite and I think I can't ask him this because he'll be upset and think we're ungrateful and perhaps it doesn't matter anyway. I mean, I had a male midwife while I was having Iris and that was fine. He tells us Beatrice's appointment at the Haven is at 6pm. He offers a taxi, but I say we'll drive. One more thing I need to ask, David says, as the phone call is drawing to a close. Does Beatrice have any mental health issues? How long have you got, is my immediate thought, but of course I don't say that. Instead, I say yes, calmly, and then proceed to elaborate on all of B's challenges. The anxiety, the depression, the self-harm, the anorexia, the medication. As I'm explaining, I'm worrying. Partly because I always worry. Because everything about my eldest daughter is a worry. But also because I'm wondering if this is going to affect how the police respond to her case. Perhaps they'll discard it due to her being too flaky to be credible, or dismiss her account as delusional, a product of the drugs, the antipsychotics she takes, and the antidepressants. Am I being paranoid? I've no idea. Nothing makes sense anymore, least of all my own sanity. You hear so many incomprehensible things about rape cases, about victims being vilified for having had more than one boyfriend, or for having a poor behaviour record at school, for being too friendly and so encouraging the rape, or too unfriendly and therefore belligerent, which led to the rape. Whatever women do, it's wrong. Damned if we do, and damned if we don't. But a stranger? In the street? Surely no woman can be blamed for that. Especially a child with absolutely no prior sexual experience. David is asking me something. Is that all, he ventures. I suppress an ironic snort of laughter. Isn't that enough? He says he'll call Beatrice later to get names and phone numbers of her friends. She was on the phone to one of them just before and just after the attack, and exchanged WhatsApp messages with others and he'll need to take statements from them all. Her phone and all the messages on it will be thoroughly checked. By the time the phone call has concluded, it's 10am. I'd been in to check on Beatrice earlier, but she was fast asleep, so I left her, sneaking back out of the door and gently pulling it too. I put my head round the door again now. She's still asleep, which is good. Iris is also still in bed. I pour coffee from the pot I've made, wrapping my hands around it, though it's not cold. I need the comfort, the normality of a hot drink in the morning. Somehow I've got to find the words to tell Iris what has happened to her sister. Years ago, just as Beatrice's anorexia was diagnosed, Iris told a school friend that she was frightened that her sister was going to die. The friend's mum told me, thinking I should know. What could I say? Reassure Iris that B was getting the best medical help available, that we wouldn't let her die, that she would be okay. Reassure her of these three things, though I could only truly be sure of the first one. "'Anorexia is perhaps the most pernicious illness to afflict young people. "'It's certainly the only one where sufferers don't want to get well. "'Having gone through it, we had tentatively and cautiously begun to hope "'that the worst was behind us and things were going to start getting better. "'All of that disappeared in a puff of malicious smoke last night. "'I take a gulp of my coffee, almost burning the roof of my mouth off. "'Unfortunately, even caffeine is not enough to steal my nerves for the task.' After so little sleep it just makes me feel jittery. Cups and mugs and plates litter the kitchen worktop and the breadboard is covered in seeds and crumbs, the knife lying next to it, the serrated blade smeared with clumps of butter. I seize it up and literally throw it into the sink. Fuck's sake! Why does Phil never clear up after himself and why does he use the bread knife to spread butter on his toast? The flush of rage I feel is out of all proportion to the misdemeanour. Angrily shoving the bread back into the bag, it occurs to me that Beatrice hasn't had anything to eat since before she went out yesterday afternoon. Skipped meals are what eating disorders thrive on. Each one is a drip, drip, drip that eats away, literally, at the part of the brain which is saying, you can do this, you can live on fresh air, you don't need food, see, you're doing it right now. I look at my watch. I'll take her coffee and toast at eleven. Before that, I must speak to Iris. Iris. I'll wake her up now and tell her in half an hour or so. The time comes. I settle Iris down on the sofa beside me and begin to explain the inexplicable. Before I finish saying the last word, her gentle blue eyes have already filled with tears, and within seconds she is audibly sobbing. She says nothing, just cries and cries. I take her in my arms and hold her, rocking her back and forth. She is only 15, and she shouldn't have to know this horror. She has internalised so much trauma over the last few years. Always a self-contained, quiet child. My sister calls her inscrutable. She has got quieter and quieter, more and more withdrawn lately. It breaks my heart. I resolve to ring the GP about a CAMS appointment for her. I'm under no illusions. We have scores of children at the school I work at on the list for mental health appointments. Most wait at least six months, some wait years. The pandemic has only made it worse. My sister calls. I have to tell her what's happened. I still can't really believe I'm saying it, that this is happening to us. To Beatrice.